innovation doesn't just like slip out. Ooh, we innovated. Right. It's like, it's a ton of frontline hand-to-hand combat with market forces, with naysayers, with your own yes. internal doubts and struggles. Welcome to The Shake Up. I'm Alexis Gay. And I'm Brianne Kimmel. And today we are talking about a super important topic, a very relevant topic in the work-life world right now. We are here talking with Alexi Robichaud, the founder and CEO of BetterUp, a platform connecting employees with certified coaches to work together on a one-to-one basis. Alexis, you've used uh, BetterUp before, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I loved it. I used it when I was a manager at Patreon. And honestly, if it had been available when I was an IC, I would have used it then too. I found it really helpful. I miss my BetterUp coach. When I left the company, I was like, can I take him with me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this is something that I'm encouraging all work-life companies to use as well. I mean, even for early stage startups, it's incredibly important to have that one-to-one mentorship. Like I've noticed this specifically with Gen Zs and people that are Mm -hmm. fresh out of school that are joining early stage companies. It's really hard to learn through osmosis if you're mostly on Zoom calls. And so where I get really excited about where BetterUp can offer a lot of help is the fact that coaching is no longer just for C-suite executives. It's actually for anyone at a company. And this has become really important with everyone working from home. Wow, Brianne, if BetterUp had been available when you and I had first started our careers, imagine how much more successful, even more wildly successful than we both are today. (laughs) Can you imagine? I don't think the world is ready. I know. Well, with that, we're so excited. Alexi, welcome to the shake up. Thank you both. I'm so excited to be here. This is really cool. It's always good to talk to better up members. So thank mm-hmm. you for using the product and I'm excited to chat more. Absolutely. So something that we just wanted to start to hear a little bit about is we know that you went on a pretty interesting journey when you were founding BetterUp, and we wanted to hear a little bit more about what you learned as you were figuring out what to do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I share your sentiment that had better up been around when I was a young professional, <laughs> hopefully mm-hmm. I would have been more successful too. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, that that was a big part of it. So I was fortunate enough to find my way to Silicon Valley and to get on a winning startups roster and go through an acquisition. It was an incredible yes. experience for me. I learned a ton. I was very young. I was like 25, 26, became an executive at a Fortune 1000 company I had no idea what I was doing because I was 25 or 26. Yeah, um, and that's a big a transition too, to go from Silicon Valley to a big, like, storied company. Yeah, and, you know, like, our company was probably 25 people when we got acquired. And oh pretty soon I had more than that in my entire org, which, wow. you know, in, in the world of orgs, that's not the biggest org in the world. But, again, as a as an order of magnitude in a very pronounced period of time, yes. it was a lot for me. And so... So long and short of it is I was pretty discombobulated through that experience. I wasn't taking great care of myself. It was, Mm. you know, I wasn't setting great boundaries to get to your question. I wasn't taking care of my well-being, my sleep. And so I took some time off. And during that time, I was able to reconnect with things I was passionate about, which was actually coaching high schoolers after school on life and leadership skills. And uh, it was really cool, actually. I, I always say, like, I learned so much through doing that. And I kept coming to this idea of like, they have me and Eddie, who's now my co-founder, was volunteering too, Mm. doing this. We're helping them through their life's big moments. And I was going through one where I felt like a failure. I felt resentful in some ways. I felt burnt out. Mm. Um, And I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I did, you know, and so to answer your question, what was I going to? What was this journey? I think it was a journey first to figure out like why I was so upset, like what went wrong. And when I did the work on it, what we now call inner work, and that work included reading like, you know, every positive psych book I could find, doing the Camino de Santiago in Spain, 
talking to executive coaches, therapists, really, I, yeah, I didn't know yeah. what this world was. I was just trying to figure it out. I, I realized that like, I was my own, you know, perpetrator. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I had done it to myself and I did it to myself by just not having basic skills related to personal boundaries, related to being compassionate with myself, related mm-hmm. to being vocal about what I needed to be successful and not just trying to be like an Uberman all the time and put the world on my shoulders. And so to your question, what was that journey? It was really a journey into myself, into my frustrations and trying to understand what could have been different, what could I have changed? Was there a particular moment that sticks out to you as like, whoa, I need to make a change here? So for me, you know, I think a couple moments when I was at the large organization, this was a repeating moment. So it happened Mm -hmm. a few times, but I remember I'd go down to these executive briefings and by some technicality, since they had acquired this new product through acquiring the company and Mm -hmm. I ran product for that company, I was like one of the nominal heads of product at this company. Uh, And this company's multi-billion dollars. And then there's this little product line we had. But because of that, I'd be included in these executive briefings with our CEO, as well as like the customers who would come would be like the CIOs of like the largest companies in the world. And I I always felt like I was like the court gesture. It was all these like 50, 60 year old (laughs) senior leaders. Right. Some of these people had like, they were icons of Silicon Valley. And then it's like Alexi in the corner, who's going to talk about, you know, a a social network. Right. And it was a cool product. People loved it. And but it was intimidating. So I, I, I had this mm. kind of like replayed experience where I'd be driving in my little Prius down from San Francisco <laughs> um, to, you know, Palo Alto. And yeah. just like, I'd get hit with just like waves of nausea, right? And just yeah. like the anxiety, the stress. And typically I, I, I do okay with public speaking, but mm-hmm. I just realized that this was an unusual reaction. Like normally I wouldn't react this way. And I realized it was because like at the core, I was just so burnt out and unbalanced and I wasn't taking care of myself. So that was one vignette that would mm. repeat itself. Yeah. You know, a lot of water on the face. Like, am I going to lose it before this meeting? I bet that's really relatable to a lot of people because a lot of people, especially in tech, find themselves on hyper growth tracks. I certainly yeah. found myself as a yeah. people manager at 22 years old. Why that was a thing that we all decided yeah. was a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. They were like, hey, you're good at this thing. You should tell other yeah. people how to do That's it. Right. And of course, me at 22 was like, absolutely, I will do whatever it takes. Right. I don't think I even read a book. I think I was like, yeah, I'm going to be great at this. Um, I was not great at this. It took a long time for me to become great at it. I think that's so relatable. Yeah. And the transition can be so overwhelming because in many ways, people choose to start companies because we don't want to work at big tech companies. And so you start mm. out as an as a high growth startup and you're loving the day to day. But that transition post acquisition can be some of the hardest. I think that's where coaching does really oh, come into play. I see this a lot on the investor side and even early hires uh, that stay on board after the acquisition. It's like the day to day of your role is is night and day. The reason why you went early stage or the reason why you like being at startups is uh, very different from joining a big company where you have to learn a lot of core skills that are fundamentally different. It's, it's so well said. I had started my career at Disney, which was an infinitely larger company. Huge. Uh, and so there was a truth of that. Of like, I, I wanted to go smaller, right? Where I can have more impact. And, and then you're big at a big company. And I think having been at Disney, I had a little context of how the world works there. So, you know, that was, to your point, there was some maybe disillusionment there. But I think for me, the big like, aha, personally, was just like, I don't know why I hadn't connected before. It's so obvious when, when we say it, but it's like, huh, 
You know, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to be really bad at your job. Surprise. Yeah, right? Like wild? it's like as it never clicked. It's like, wait, I just got to be good at my job. And it's like that's kind of like Tom Brady saying I'm going to, you know, not work out, not exercise, not eat and still be the greatest quarterback of all times. Like there's a reason that guy has a, you know, a, a meal company, right? Yeah. Like yeah. for him it's a peak part of his formula for performance. He swears by it. and whether or not we all agree with his meal diet, we don't have to but we can't deny that it works for him. And so I think mm-hmm. for me, that was the big epiphany is like, how did I keep these domains separate for so long? I just thought I could infinitely like perform and there was no need to fill up the tank. And yeah. I discovered through a lot of pain that like, whoa, there's this whole world of skills and behaviors and mindsets and practices on mm-hmm. how to sustainably fill up the tank. So you can be the best version, as close to the Tom Brady of X as we all may be able to be, whatever that may be for each of us. Wow, that's, yeah, that resonates a lot. I mean, as the CEO of a coaching company, what are some of the company values and best practices that you pass down to the rest of the team? Yeah, so I mean, we took our values very seriously, mainly because I didn't have a great experience. So, you know, part of building better up was Eddie, my co-founder, and I really wanting to prove to ourselves first, but also to Silicon Valley that like you could build startups in a better way. You don't, there's not a trade-off between sustainable peak performance and taking Mm -hmm. care of your people. And this idea that like you have to, you know, work 400 hours a week, obviously not that many hours a week um, to, to, (laughs) to do great things is just not true, right? Like you probably have to work more than 40 hours a week in most startups, but there's a balance there. And so we started with the values and by design, we have two groups of values. We have six values that we still live and breathe and we we always need to get better at that. Um, But they're really in two groupings intentionally. One grouping is speaks to the performance profile that it takes to do something innovative and big in the world. You you two know better than anyone. Like this Mm -hmm. stuff is hard. I love that. Like innovation doesn't just like slip out. Ooh, we innovated. It's like, it's a ton of frontline hand-to-hand combat with market forces, with, you know, naysayers, with your own yes. internal doubts and struggles. So we have these values of courage, craftspersonship, and grit, which really speak mm-hmm. to like, this stuff is hard. And they're yes. rooted in the research and positive and behavioral science. These are, you know, you can get good at these things, good at great yes. standards, good at mm-hmm. Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, right? That oh, book one of my awesome favorite books of all time, literally life-changing, yeah. yes. <laughs> totally, right? And the key to grit is actually passion is what most it's, people yes. fit, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. it mm-hmm. starts with the heart. You have to be passionate and find your work to be meaningful. Then we have these these kind of like, whoa, those feel a little woo-woo, but actually they're, they're also corroborated by the research yeah. and science, which are, we have playfulness, empathy, and zest. And this is the mm. other side that like, if you're going to sustainably perform you have to have fun at some level. You have to tinker yeah. and toy with new ideas. And you have to have a buoyancy to you because you continually get knocked down as if you're mm-hmm. trying bold, brave, courageous things. And you're doing that at a really high standard of excellence due to the craftspersonship. So those have been our values. Now, the way we actuate that a ton, which I won't bore you with, but one practice we've really inculcated and we're always trying to improve on is what we call inner work, which is make it part of our job at BetterUp to work on ourselves. Hmm. Most of our concept of work is that work happens outside of you. You go to a meeting, you have a conversation, that's outside of you. You make a PowerPoint deck, that's outside of you. You do an Excel model, that's outside of you. But what I had realized in my own experience is I wasn't investing in what was inside of me. And because I was so worn down and empty there, it was affecting what was coming outside of me. And so what we've done at BetterUp is not just focus on outer work is what we call it. 
but focus yeah. on inner work, give people time, give them resources like coaching, give them space mm-hmm. so that like today, don't work on any outer work. We are literally going to pay you to go take a nature walk, to go meditate, to talk to your coach or therapist, to spend time with something that gives you joy. I get it. That sounds real woo-woo. Like, what are you doing? Well, the reality is you're filling their tank of gas. That's what you're doing. And as an employer, we would argue you should be remunerating them to do that because not only does it drive better performance, it actually honors their humanity by saying you're not a robot that just outputs all the time. I need you to have rich inputs so that I get more creative, imaginative outputs. Alexi, one question there. I mean, when you're at dinner with other founders, like, how do you approach the naysayers? Because I can imagine there's a whole era of founders that are move fast and break things, hire fast, fire fast. Like, what are some of the conversations and how do you come up against some of these founders that have that old school mentality? Yeah, I, I think it is an old school mentality. I mean, I, I find for the most part, like the founders that are much more successful than we are, we're still early in our journey they actually don't tend to struggle with this as much. They usually, I find, mm-hmm. have a reflection when they're like, you know, I probably should have done more of that. You know, mm-hmm. in retrospect, like, I thought it was that way, but now that I'm further along, man, I am realizing, like, my energy is maybe one of the greatest assets the company has if I'm founder of a, I don't know, publicly traded company or something. Right. I really have to preserve that. And I'm realizing my lieutenants need to preserve that and invest mm-hmm. in that. So I actually find it's often founders earlier in their journey where they're probably still in the stage where they can grit it out. There's five or 10 yes. people, they're early yep. laps in a thing. And you're like, hey, that like, if I told you there's a thing called a marathon and you've only run a sprint, you'd be like, yeah, it's right. 24 sprints. I get it. And it's like, well, <laughs> not really. It's a, it's a whole different beast, you know? And so totally. what I find though, what I tend to point to, to the heart of your question is the data is pretty irrefutable scientifically, Hmm. right? So if you have an empirically minded founder, I think the data is pretty clear. You can look at sports psychology. You can look at Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, which has Mm -hmm. great research, but ethnographic stuff with Pete Carroll and the Seahawks as well. And I think there's a scientific case you can base here. But what I usually start with is inner work. And I just say, just reflect on your own life and tell me when you were the most creative. A hundred percent. And like, what you find is those periods are often bound by what we would call inner work, unstructured times where the people weren't being productive, um, but they were producing. And, and I think it's that building that personal connection with that founder where they're like, whoa, you're right. I came up with this idea when I was unemployed. Whoa, mm-hmm. if I, I wasn't working hard and that was the best idea of my life, this could be a founder saying, now we're not going to unemploy your people in hopes they all come up with the best idea of their life. Right, but what about being unemployed led you to be so creative? And then you can mm-hmm. kind of work through that. Wow. I really love that framework. You know, I have what might be kind of a a hard question, but go with me on this because it sounds like what you're describing is a pretty utopic ideal of how to run a company and how to run a company well and treat your people well and all that. Has it ever felt like you've had to make a trade-off in order to do that, in order to provide a company culture like that? I would say not at a macro view, but episodically, sure. Right. So I think, you know, at a high level, if we look at the nine, eight, nine years of better of history, no, I feel like we have only tried to lean into our values more and we're not perfect. Hmm. These values are really hard. And by design, we'll never, who's ever going to be able to say I'm consummately courageous? No one. Right. So by design, these values are evergreen (laughs) and that's what we like about them. But episodically, sure. Like there have been moments of time where it's like, hey, the team, here's a real case example start of COVID, start of the pandemic. We were already Mm -hmm. tired. We had spent two years retooling our go-to-market. 
we had gone from having like a truly zero quarter when we were already probably 50 plus million in revenue to have a zero quarter oh is not fun. Let me tell oh you to, hey, now, you know, we had that machine going to predictably doubling, right? Going into, in, into the pandemic. That was a long haul. It cost us a lot of energy, effort, mm-hmm. tiredness. People were understandably beat. And we were still trying to do that in the most sustainable way. Well, then COVID hit. Right. And we didn't know what that would mean for our business. It was scary, like it was Mm -hmm. for everyone. Our buyer is predominantly a CHRO. They were frontline crisis management for the first two months of COVID. They weren't buying anything because they were just understandably taking care of everyone else. Then, like a switch, I remember within like a 14 day period, it was like, we are going to buy with more velocity and ferocity than you ever thought was possible, better up. Like we have cut all that dramatic. That dramatic. It's like, Phones started blowing up. Like we just got through crisis management. We cut all of our workshops. We're giving you, even though we're cutting our L&D or training or HR budget, you're getting the lion's share of that, you and other virtual things like Coursera or you know Udemy that are scalable. We need yeah. you now more than ever on the front lines. And remember, our team just went through a pretty tough two-year period of corporate transformation, yeah. followed by two months of what's going on. We have a very diverse population right? So we're almost 30% underrepresented minorities at BetterUp. Mm-hmm. So the racial violence about George Floyd took on an extra mm-hmm. layer, if you can imagine, of emotionality, yeah. as it should, understandably, and awareness for many of us who come from different backgrounds, right to this is now the busiest moment of your life. You thought that oh was busy God. before. Now we can't keep up. And so Eddie and I were like, what do we do? Like, we can't drop the ball on our customers and be like, hey, sorry about that. We're really tired. Yeah. We've been running for two years And this is really inconvenient, you know, like we, can we do this next year in triple? How about not right now? And so we went to Angela Duckworth's work. We, we, we basically went to the heart of grit. We said, how can we get a team that's already tired to authentically find more gas in their tank? And there was only one answer we came up with. And that was, we have to go back to the passion. So the first Hmm. thing we did in COVID, which I'm so proud the team did is we didn't take care of those customers. We actually donated free coaching to all frontline healthcare workers. Oh my total God. loss. Just like take a pause. Let's lean into this moment. Let's and, and it, it it like was it was so, it was like a lubricant for the motor. Like it just everyone came alive with like wow. unfettered energy that literally wasn't there a week or two before. When people found out about this thing, we called it Project Galen, homage to one of the first doctors. When people found out about Project Galen, it was like it was like a new team in like a two to three week period, it was crazy. But it was that insight from grit that if we get their passion going, then the grit will come back. But if they're just focused mm-hmm. on, I have to go service more customers, yep. Ugh, yep. it's going to be really tough. Wow. I mean, the, the thing that really stands out to me here is so many companies talk about employee retention. They want to come up with like, you know, a creative way for keeping employees excited in this case, it's so authentic and so true to the company that that passion, like I can just feel it when you talk about it. Yeah, it was super. I mean, it, it wasn't mine or Eddie's idea. It had come to us, but we're like, we need to move on this. Like this is, I mean, it was a bet. It turned out it was, it worked. Yep. Maybe there would have been something better. We'll never know. But it was a good bet that we made as a leadership team based on someone's idea. And it worked. It rejuvenated the culture and the energy at a pivotal time. 
And then we could let people rest. Sure. Yeah. What, what was the next step after that? Yeah. So the next step was, hey, how do we encourage people to take more time off? How do we structure? Mm-hmm. Like we started to look at, you know, do we try some teams are trying no meeting stuff, like really look at our collaboration and see how we can make this more sustainable. We started yeah. doing stuff for parents, right? Our data showed that parents mm-hmm. were the most hit, right? Barring other factors, sure. You know, parents were very impacted and hit. How do we take care of parents? How are we encouraging them to, you know, take time with their children? How are we normalizing? We had we had staff members offering to babysit people's kids so they could go to a meeting. While you know, a PM who didn't have kids was like, "I'll Zoom babysit your kid so you can go join this design sync." And so we're really as a community mobilized. And then I think people could really like rotate out and be like, I need to take a few weeks. I need to do this. We started sabbaticals. We always had a sabbatical, but we started accelerating. Mm -hmm. People were like, hey, I'm not at my four years, but I need that sabbatical now. We started to grant those now, right? So we just, we tried it. It was, I can't say there was a silver bullet, but we tried to host. And I, and I think my, my, my coaching for founders is there's never a silver bullet. It's the intentionality. People taste Mm. the intentionality and leadership. And that itself is an intervention because you show you care. And then they're very forgiving. Maybe the tactics 5% off, 10% Mm. off. What really bothers people is when you just don't care and they know you don't care and you pay lip service to it. They'd much rather you care and genuinely try and fail. That itself is healing as opposed to like, I came up with the perfect idea, but I really don't like, I'm just doing it because it's going to make me more money versus like I'm doing it to take care of you. Alexi, do you ever feel more pressure for your company culture as the CEO of a company that- yeah. What is that? What, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I often say this would be a lot easier if we sold databases. No one would care what right? our culture is, right? Like, I mean, the people who work here would care, but like no one externally would care. Yeah. But it just must feel like all eyes on you sometimes with this. Yeah. I mean, Eddie and I try to keep a perspective that like all eyes is probably like three people who follow us on Twitter. Um, but, you know, it's, that's me personally. Fortunately, tons of people follow better up. But, you know, I, 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 no, I think we have always, we, we've always known in a success state for better up because the nature of our work and what mm-hmm. we do, we should be, and we will be held to higher standards. Yeah. And so I think there's a, there's a sobriety in our mindset about that. We know that. And it's something we signed up for. It's not always comfortable, but we get it and it's good. And that it actually forces us to innovate because all of these companies we work with want to perform at higher standards. And so if we can kind of take one for the team here and have to be at the front line innovating and figuring out how do you how do you do this and have high humanity work that's high purpose, but also high performance. So yes, I will say as a founder, when I talk to other founder friends, like, oh, yeah, you probably don't have to deal with this. No one has a magnifying glass in your culture all the time. We right. do given the nature of the business we're in. And, and that's okay. We don't hide from it. We try to be very open about it, take the feedback and get better. Well, in the last 12 months have really shown how important company culture is. Like we saw the Coinbase memo, we saw the Shopify memo. I think increasingly there's so much pressure on CEOs to really declare what the company stands for and how the internal culture actually works. Because that's something where there's been this this age-old question, you know, are we a family? Are we a team? Right, how would you right. describe, you know, the, the better up team and sort of how you think about your internal culture? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, good teams feel like families is the is is my reconciliation to that. Ooh, have you I ever like been that. on a great team? Yes, you've been on a great team. How would you have described it? You probably would have described it as a family 10 out of 10 times, right? Like talk That's to game winning teams are like, yeah, this feels like a family. Is it a family? Of course, it's not a family. You only have one biological family, right? By definition. And so 
I know what that argument represents. I feel like it often mm. gets like totemized in, in the valley and it turns into, yes. you're not saying it in this way, Brianne, but you know what I'm saying, where it turns into like, are we in the Netflix team camp or the family y- camp? And literally, we- yes. <laughs> yes, r- literally. That's what it's, we all, we've all had this debate with some friends. We've that, all seen you know, the deck. Okay. We've, <laughs> we've all, all looked at the, the slides. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think where I was always torn in that, we, we used to say family early on because it felt like yeah. a family. And then I read that deck and I was like, oh no, maybe we're doing it all wrong. And I think yeah. I finally yeah. just made my peace. I'm like, the best teams I've ever been on felt like a family. Like, yes, yes at my core. I know it's a team. So here's how we try to reconcile this very specifically in our culture of better up just to, to localize this. We're very clear. We're, we're big fans of conscious business. Fred Kaufman's been a big influence who helped shape Jeff Wiener's leadership style and the culture at LinkedIn with read around, you know, compassionate, conscious leadership, that your job is not your job. That is a core tenet of conscious business. Your job is to help the customer and the company win. And so we always say at better up, you have three jobs at this company. Your first job is to be an extreme owner. You literally own the company. You have ownership in the company. And as an extreme owner, your job is not your job. Meaning that if you say I'm customer success, but you see something here, you don't have to run over and do it. But your job is to call for the ball and say, hey, there's a problem. You can't say that's not my job. It is your job if you see something. The second thing is you're a citizen in our community. Whether this is a family or a team, it's a bunch of humans. So it's a community. And in this community, just like in the world we live in, we have some rules. And the rules in our community are... You have to be a good citizen, which means you have to intentionally try to get better at our values and behaviors. You have to respect Mm. them. You have to honor them. You have to value them. They are values. So if you don't value these values, you can't be a citizen in our community. You should be a citizen in another community where you value their values and you'll be much happier there. And you have to respect your fellow community members. Mm -hmm. And then you have a third job, which is called your role. And that's what you probably apply for online. And that job, as you two know better than anyone, when you're good at it, it doesn't last long. And so that job is the least important. And our promise to you is if you're good at the first job and you're good at the second job, you will probably change your third job a lot. But if it turns out you're not good at your third job and you're good at the first two, then we will go the extra mile Mm -hmm. as your partner and employer to find the right third job. And we can't guarantee it. It is a business. We can't just make a job because we like you. But we will go the extra mile (laughs) and we do this all the time. But here's the reciprocal. If you're good at your third job and you're bad at your first or second job, Mm. we also go the extra mile to end your employment immediately. You will be coached on it probably once. You'll be given feedback. You will be given a real fair chance. But if it Mm -hmm. doesn't improve, we can't tolerate that because that's how we create a conscious culture with everyone caring about these values and leaning into them. And so to your question, that's how we've tried to reconcile. And so far, it's been, a, it's, it's, it's honestly worked because people feel taken care of, right? right. There's a, there's a, they're going to give me a chance. If this role doesn't work out, I'm not just gone. That's the family part. I get another chance, but there's also the hard knocks of business, which is like, we have to actually create value in the world. And if over time that's not happening, we just can't find the right role ever. We don't have to describe fault. It's just not a fit. Right. And we've seen that reconcile this team family feel where we know performance is the standard, but it's not ruthless performance. It's very compassionate, thoughtful performance. Absolutely. Wow. I love that. I mean, I'm ready to come work at BetterUp right now. That sounds like an amazing place awesome. to be. <laughs> we should have a podcast. You, you, you two can do that it. Would that would be, be great. so fun. That's great. I was just saying, I real, I need a third podcast. That's what I need right now. Um, <laughs> Alexi, so tell me this. You know, what we're talking a little bit about right now, even not intentionally, is 
how companies signal to potential employees what they're about. They can do that with words on the wall, words on the website, CEO and founders on podcast interviews, for example. Sure. But you know, one of the things that now people can do is offer better up coaching to their employees and yeah. signal that and say, we're investing in you. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like what you think that signals when a company is engaging and offering this type of coaching and investment to their employees. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm a little biased here, right? So, <laughs> but look, I mean, I, I think. Do you love that question? I'm like, tell me about why your company is You know, amazing. surprisingly, <laughs> I don't get it very often. Yeah, so I do love this question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> of um, course. So, look, I think it's the word you said. It's investment, right? I think first and foremost, like that communicates as an employer to your employees how I would have felt if someone tapped me on the shoulder at Disney and said, "Hey, we're gonna, we think you're high potential. We're gonna give you." A, like a, a real human expert coach. Yes. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to go to a conference room and, and just sit there and talk to them. Like this person will be like, right. be in your pocket and be on your, like work in a way you like to work and engage with the world. I mean, that would have spoken volumes to me that like, first of all, you know who I am at a company this large. You clearly are making a differentiated investment in me. And like you, you actually believe in my potential to grow and you want me here for the long haul. So I think first and foremost, it just signals to people like, I feel seen, I feel yes. heard, and I feel respected because the ultimate sign of an employer respecting an employee is investment. Like, I can yeah, tell I you I respect you all day, but if I don't pay you more, if I never promote you and I don't give you more responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, like, do I respect you? I may respect your humanity, but I'm clearly not putting you in the first string. And everyone wants to be in that first string on a team, right? Like that's when you really feel invested in. And so I think that's the first thing it does. I think the other thing it does, especially with how a lot of our deployments are designed, it's really inspiring to see what companies have done on the platform beyond what we ever expected. But you know, we're now seeing a very common deployment type is where members of certain resource groups are getting access to BetterUp. So populations oh, of people cool. really, so it's like, hey, you're in the vets ERG at company X, you get better up. You're in the, mm. you know, African-American ERG or you're yep. in the yep. Hispanic ERG or, you know, we have one company that's like, if you're a BIPOC, you know, you identify as BIPOC uh-huh. and you're a manager, you're immediately eligible for, for yeah. better up. And other people are too, but that's one of the criteria. And so it's been really rewarding to just see that like people are using it strategically to say, these are populations we feel in good conscience we have underinvested in. And yes. better up is not a silver bullet. You can't just do that and do nothing, but it's, it's better than doing nothing. And it's really meaningful to those people. And then we try to partner with them on the structural things they need to change in their company to really pipeline that investment into business outcomes, promotion, things, recruiting, things like that as well. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, at the start of COVID, um, your core buyer is, you know, ahead of people and culture. Does that mean now, I mean, do you have certain parts of the go-to-market org really focused on ERGs and on some of these use cases that have a lot more urgency, especially over the, the last 12 months or so? Yeah, so we have four solutions now is how you consume better up as an enterprise customer. You can use any combination thereof, they're all compatible. And our core historic solution was what we now, it's our talent solution. And we had we, we can configure that however, but we actually built a custom solution at really around COVID and focused on our research and some of the use cases we were already doing as a subset of the talent solution, focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. 
And so absolutely, we have a lot of customers now who are buying this specific solution. And that solution comes with a, a ton of, it has special assessments, special reporting, it measures mm. things like belonging, that is a, we've found in our research to be one of the best predictive indicators of performance and inclusion. Mm-hmm. So it has custom stuff. It has a coach cohort that's certified and trained in these types of use cases and what are some of the unique challenges and opportunities. And it also has a representative coaching diversity pool itself, meaning that you're more likely to encounter a coach who looks like you. Now, generally with our algorithms and things like that, that's going to happen on the platform writ large. But Mm -hmm. those cohorts, we prioritize coaches who come from different walks of life to really make sure that people are feeling that they're able to share that experience with someone who may have been in their shoes before and experienced that. And then we sell out of HR. We have a sales solution for sales. It doesn't do sales coaching, but it's in leadership in the context of sales. And we also have a, an offering focused on benefits, which is more well-being and mental fitness. That makes a lot of sense. You know, for companies that potentially have a longer sales cycle, it's awesome to hear that you've been able to identify a few urgent use cases to really accelerate your go-to-market. I think that's something that we're seeing, you know, when certain teams are either having spend that gets cut or the sales cycle feels fairly long. I think for an early stage company, that's a really great insight where if you dig deeper into the data and you really identify these are some use cases that you can close much faster than maybe a company-wide contract, like that to me feels like a really smart move Mm. for even early stage companies to identify. Absolutely. I think that's a really good, I mean, we stumbled upon it. It took us probably too long to kind of now it feels obvious for our own business. It probably took us too long to get to that. But I think anytime you're one of these like, you know, new category defining platforms, what you're dealing with is like people don't actually know how to use you. And so we found this in our our early sales process. People were blown away by the outcomes, blown away by the experience. They'd use BetterUp and be like, oh my gosh, this is game changing. We now have 70% of our platform sessions internationally. So this includes countries where people don't go around like Americans say everything's amazing, saying that they're (laughs) coaching sessions, not their coach or relationship, but individual sessions are scored as life-changing or amazing 70% of the time, right? So like, that's really hard to do. But what we realize in the sales process is we get through this, people be blown away and we get to this perennial like, well, where do I start? Who do I coach? Because like, presumably I could coach everyone at my company Mm -hmm. could benefit from this. And so to your point, Brian, it's kind of like the flip side of being innovative and a general purpose utility in some ways or an experience platform for us is you have to help people understand the who in a very finite way so they can make a purchasing decision. And we found for us, it used to be, we had use cases, we supercharges with more product around solutions. And we're seeing that that's exactly what it is. It increases deal size we've seen and it increases deal velocity, which is really counterintuitive. So we've actually seen our sales cycle go down and our ACV go up in the past 24 months, which is awesome. And I really credit it to some of that's better execution, better right leadership. But a lot of that is that packaging and making it very clear to people what they're getting and how they can deploy it. That's um, that's truly amazing. I'm actually not that surprised to hear about, you mentioned the, I think you said the ACV went up, but the sales cycle went down. I mean, I think when you're offering a more specific solution for what people need, I think it can definitely lead to an easier yes. And especially, especially when your buyer right now is so inundated with like, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. I think having that easier yes could be super helpful. So that's, I mean, that's awesome that you all were able to pivot and lean into some of the more specific use cases you we're seeing. A question that I had yeah. for you is a little bit about what 
better up reflects for me, which is this idea that technology can be used as a tool to democratize something that previously was reserved for only the most elite levels of whatever that is. We talked about Tom Brady at the most elite levels of athleticism, or we're saying the CEOs of major companies or, you know, very top people in the military. And technology has historically in the last, let's call it few decades, but many people I'm sure would argue it was for decades and decades before that, has offered the opportunity to take this elite education or whatever it is and bring it down to the mass level. And I'm wondering, is that something that was going through your head when you were thinking about founding Better Up, or is that a corollary that you found along the way? No, it was a huge part of it with one caveat, Hmm. which I'll get to in a second. So I often say there's three books that I was reading while I was going through this personal experience. But like philosophically, there's kind of three books that ch- are the DNA proteins of better okay. us. Thinking. I'm so excited. I'm going to take notes so the, that I can read them. The fir- sure. The, I love them. I mean, <laughs> um, I'm, again, super biased here. But um, the first book is The Experience Economy. And that's going to pick up on what you're talking mm. about. That we're not in a services economy more, anymore. We're in an experiences economy. And um, a lot of the experience economy is making experiences more accessible that used to be very experienced, expensive to more people. There's a democratization component. The second book is Blue Ocean Strategy, which we love, which is, Mm. hey, it's not about competitive differentiation. It's about value innovation and taking people who historically are non-customers, i.e. all of us historically are non-coaching customers. We couldn't afford that. We weren't customers. And not not competing with customers, but innovating to make non-customers your unique customers. And that's the story of BetterUp right? It's like, we didn't go and sell against your existing executive coaching program. That would be us trying to win customers. We went and said, all those people you think you can't coach, they're non-customers. They're not in the TAM for coaching today. Mm. We have invented a way, we have the patent on it for virtual coaching, literally. We've invented the first way to make it affordable and even possible for you to coach them. And then there's the one caveat, which is the third Mm. book, which is Shauna Core, The Happiness Advantage. But if we Mm. do this, we are not watering down the Kool-Aid. If we do this, we want more science because one of the problems with coaching is it's not data-driven enough. It's not scientific enough versus therapy. We want more science. We want more rigor. And we actually want it to be measurably better than the high luxury expensive coaching Mm -hmm. that you think is better. And we've we've been able to prove that in all of our studies of better up versus traditional coaching. We hear from customer after company. Not only are we a tenth the cost of traditional coaching, we drive much better scalable outcomes than coaching that costs 10 times as much, right? And that, if you don't do that, then I would argue, well, I would just say for Eddie and I, we wouldn't have been interested in this company. Um, if we were just watering down the Kool-Aid and like everyone can have a yeah. little coaching and it's cheaper. I mean, that's cool. It's better than none. But for us, yeah. it was like, no, by using technology, mm-hmm. we're technologists at heart. I'm a technologist. Right. By using technology, we should be able to beat the analog version, not just scale the analog version. If, if you just democratize something cool analog, that's like step one. Step two is make right. it better than it ever could have been without digital. And that's yes. really been the, like, that's the through line of the better of journey. Hmm. That's amazing. Honestly, I love, first of all, I can't wait to read all three of those books. I haven't read any of them. I was thinking, I was like, maybe I'll have one out of three, maybe two. Oh my God, zero out of three. My life well, is going to change. <laughs> they changed my life. Two, two hacks for the experience economy. And yes. for Blue Ocean, there's HBR articles you can read, and the Ooh. books are amazing. But you can oh, get the not, you it. can get the whole framework in an article for the ex- uh, happiness advantage, 
There is an HBR article by Sean, but the book is you need like the book. You have to read that book. It's a game changer. That book was so instrumental in my life. So, but the first two, you can get the business strategy investment frameworks just from the HBR articles. And, and, you know, if you love it, dive into the book, but you can, you can save yourself two bucks. Love that. Um, Thank you for recommending three and then saving me two. That's math that really works well for my schedule, Alexi. I appreciate it so much. Something that Brianne and I have reflected on as we've discussed better up amongst ourselves is the way that it feels like shifting market forces have made it possible in a lot of ways for better up to achieve the type of growth that you've seen. I'm thinking specifically about the shifting perspective and, in my opinion, reductive stigma around mental health and around some of these what we'll call like, you know, traditionally softer skills or softer topics. And then what we just discussed, which was tech. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to how you've seen the market shift as a result of that reduced stigma, or if you have, or if I'm way off base or what else I might be missing there. You're not off base at all. I mean, I I often tell the team, I I really believe, and time will only tell, but from where I'm standing on a little human timeline today, frog in a well, I really believe we're at the dot-com boom equivalent of mental health in human history Ooh. is just like wow. we look back at 2000 and say that was the advent for better or worse. There was also the <laughs> blow up of 1999 IPOs, but that yeah. made the internet <laughs> and internet as a base platform for business. That that's, we all say, ah, oh, that's when it started 2000, right? There were a couple companies, Google was founded before Amazon was yes. before, but it was yeah. post 2000 that this became a thing. I think we're going to look back in 50 years when we have grandkids or maybe great grandkids and we're going to be like, I was there. I was yeah. in Silicon Valley wow. in 2020 when COVID hit. And to your point, I have seen more walls come down in stigma, more awakening mm-hmm. in positive ways in the first 12 months of COVID than in the 34 years of my life prior, right? And I have heard this from people who have a lot more than 34 years, right? And so um, mm-hmm. I think it was it was happening before, but we were weirdos in 2013. I mean, no one liked us. Investors didn't want to touch sure. us. I mean, mindfulness was just coming on. And we were like, ah, man, mindfulness is like a small part. It's way bigger than mindfulness. And they're like, whoa, what are you talking about? You guys are crazy. We thought you were smart and we're going to do something cool. This sounds like the world's worst business. You found a way yeah. to lower your gross margins at scale. Good Did you job. get feedback that um, was like that? Like really critical feedback? Oh, like this isn't going to work. Nobody wants this. hundred percent. People, I got everything from like, we thought you'd come with something better. We really liked you as an entrepreneur oh. until we saw this. Wow. You know, oh my God. The, That's really harsh oh, feedback. Oh, it was, yeah, I mean, I don't want to like, I mean, I'm sure they meant well. So I'll just take them this. I mean, we got the like, my favorite was like a readout from a partner meeting of a fund, which was like, you know, we missed this the first time, but now we get it. Like better up is really for like the weaklings on every team. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yes. Don't fund us. You're please. like, yes, that's Don't. my TAM. Yeah. My TAM, it's, yeah. a, it's a weakling yes, my TAM. TAM is, that's what I'm is weaklings because it's so yeah. easy to segment, by the way. Oh. It's really smart. And so, and so that's, you immediately passed on them. They didn't pass on you. Yeah, you yeah, yeah they, hopefully. They were, still, they were still, no, we weren't even that good. We didn't, they were still passing on us. That was just oh, feedback. No. But, uh, <laughs> every, hopefully someday. Every, <laughs> Everyone passed on us. Don't worry. It was cool. Um, it made us great. But you kept going us, anyway. We kept you believed. Going, but you were not discouraged we by believed. that. What do you think it was that kept you going? I mean, probably some level of frontal lobe compromisation. Like Eddie and I just probably have a compromised <laughs> risk reward center and like sure, our, sure. our brains are messed up. We refuse up. to like, die. We, we used, you know, we used to joke, we'll be the cockroaches of Silicon Valley. Like we're going to be here mm. doing better up. We'll see if you're here. No. 
We just refuse to die. And that was a big part of it. And, and not to be too right. much cheese here, but we have this great story of we, we, we were studying elite performers in all factors of life. And so we had a buddy who was an Olympian who also went on to be an officer in the Navy SEALs. So we asked him if he could pull together a focus group. We did a focus group the week oh before gosh. of Mary Kay saleswomen and the Bayer, which was awesome, by the way. Talk about elite performers, like running a household, running their own business is incredible. Then we go down to Coronado to spend a day with Navy SEAL officers. And we're asking them, yes, yes. Do, you know, they're like <laughs> we, we bring some off-piece offerings of Costco liquors. Those go way faster than it ever should. <laughs> and we're talking to these guys yeah. and we're saying, hey, like, why did you pass buds? And someone else did it. It's the hardest training program on earth that we know of. Um, and to a man, and literally they all happen to be men, to a man, yeah, yeah. you know, they were mystified. It's like the question didn't compute. And we're like, is the alcohol getting to them? Like, no, no. Like, why you mm-hmm. versus someone else? Hmm. And what's interesting when you talk to these of officers, course. they're not the biggest people. They're not like who you may think. They're very well built, obviously. And they're very smart. And so you're like, why you? And they all were mystified. And then uh-huh. finally it kind of clicked and they yes. collectively dawned and they just came back. They're like, because we chose to, what do you mean? It's like, what do you mean? You chose to They're like, it's really yes. simple. When you go into buds, you have two choices. You either die or you pass. Like you just have to resolve that in your head that you have to quit. You have to crawl up on that stand and ring that bell and you right. choose to quit by default. You won't get kicked out. You, you may, you may die in the water, but you won't get kicked out. So you choose to quit. And Eddie and I left that. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, we're not nearly that tough. But we're like, you know what? We're just, that was our saying. We're never ringing the bell. Like we can go bankrupt. People, like if the world won't let us keep doing better, we'll stop. But we're never, we just put it out of our mind. And I'll be honest, Eddie and I have never, and we probably should have had many of them. This is where I say our brains were probably just compromised. Really? We have never in eight, nine years had a conversation about quitting. It never entered parlance. Wow. There was never a day where we felt defeated and we're like, yeah. should we stop? It was always like, that sucked. <laughs> we're going to figure out how to do it. And I don't say that to be tough. It could just be we're really stupid. But like, it, for some reason, that got in our bones and it just like, we put it out mm. of our heads and it just never became a choice for us. And retrospect, I don't know why it wasn't. It was the obvious choice for many years. It just never happened. So if we go back, sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but- I'm loving um, it. If, if we- if I forgot your original question, what was your, I digress. I forgot so much. my original. Oh, I was talking about shift. And, oh, I yeah. was so yeah, captivated yeah. Yeah, by yeah. that. So the shift. Oh, shift and so market So we've been stigma. waiting for yeah, it. Yeah. We've just been like running around thinking this was going to happen. So people ask like, were you surprised? I'm like, I thought it was already happening in 2013. And I woke up every day thinking I was going to miss the wave. That's how you feel as a founder. It was so clear to wow. Eddie and I that this is the future that we're like, ah, oh, we had high mm-hmm. anxiety every day. We're not going fast enough. We're going to miss it. So totally. I was surprised it took something like COVID to do it. And shame on me. It means I'm not in yeah. touch with my market. I'm, I'm, I'm sad it took something like COVID to do it. I'm happy it's done mm-hmm. or it's happening, right? It's a good moment for humanity. But maybe just the proxy of being or as a function of being a founder, I've been waiting for it. We've been waiting wow. for it. We, we woke up every day in those early years only motivated by that vision and the idea that if we don't go faster, we're going to miss that wave. And the wave just took a lot longer to crest than we thought. What stands out to me here is that BetterUp is not just a platform for people that work at startups, but this is something that can apply to a lot of industries. And so while I feel like the Bay Area is getting comfortable with talking about mental health and, and talking about you know, actually taking our unlimited uh, time off and, and using it effectively. 
I can imagine you're seeing some really interesting examples in other sectors as well, where it's still very taboo to talk about mental health or to even take one day off of work. My favorite customers, like I never, I often say like we were wrong about, we've been probably wrong about 3 million things, but high level three big misses and building better up. First miss, we really thought this was for millennials <laughs> because we were millennials. We were coaching millennials after school. You're both millennials, right? Like, oh, every millennial would want this. We learned really quick from these huh. companies, to your point, Brianne, they were like, these CHROs who weren't millennials would look at us and be like, why do you say millennials in your marketing? Like, I used it and loved it, and everyone on my team would use it. So that was the first thing. The second thing we were wrong huh. about is we really thought it was going to be knowledge workers, like traditional white-collar knowledge economy, high-gross margin businesses. And we learned really fast. I mean, we have Hilton Hotels. We have restaurateurs. We have government agencies like NASA. We have, you know, Southern California Edison utility workers who go fix yes. power lines, do better up sessions. They can do them in their cars, on their break. We have, you know, BP. We have people in oil fields and some of the largest energy companies in the world, right? So the second area we're wrong is it's actually, to your set, it's everyone. In fact, being in the field sometimes makes it more of a lifesaver because it's the only tools you can get that are mobile enabled. And then I would say the third area we're wrong is, you know, we really thought that it would, and this wow. was actually chronologically the first page we were wrong. We really never thought companies would buy it. We started as direct to consumer and professionals bought it for themselves because we never thought companies, we didn't know if they'd make the investment. And that was the first place we were wrong. We realized companies want to, they want to partner and they want to invest and they want to spend this money to make this free for their employees because they know it makes them better at their jobs and better at life. Absolutely. And that absolutely is now more than ever true. Wow. I yeah. loved talking to you today, Alexi. This was amazing. Thank you so much for this joining so us. Fun. Thank you both. You two are great at what you do. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. And I look forward to seeing how it comes out. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. Where can people find more about BetterUp? You can find more about BetterUp at betterup.com. Love that. Okay. Thank you again, Alexi. It was so great chatting. Likewise. Hey, Rianne, are you ready to do that thing we practiced? Oh my gosh, is it time? I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one. Don't, Don't forget, forget to subscribe, subscribe and leave, leave us, us a review. review. Pretty good. <laughs> Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Lauren Schild. Our engineer is William Lowe, with research from Corey Broccolini. And special thanks to Kyle Denhoff and Lisa Toner. We have some amazing guests coming up this season that you won't want to miss. See you next time.